You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We are a film criticism show. Tonight, the show is brought to you by myself, Thomas Cordwell. We've got the original lineup in the cave tonight. Josh Nelson and Tara Judah. This is our final show for the year, so we're especially sad that our fourth uh, presenter, Cerise Howard, couldn't be with us tonight. Cerise genuinely uh, wanted to be here and intended on being here, but is not well at all. And I, I did bump into Cerise last Thursday, and I could hear her voice was fading, so it just... The voice didn't come through, but um, she's actually passed on a lot of notes about the, the, the year that's just passed, which we will we will comment on and, and mention. Do we have a video message to play to the to We didn't get time to organise right a video message, no. <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm pretty sure that I can guess the colours of the rainbow for her reviews. I know that the immigrant was brown, and I reckon that I can get the rest of the shades. Nice. It's just about right. There's definitely a beige one in there, too, mm. it's somewhere. So this, is a, this is a pity. Without Cerise, we have no reviewing by colour happening here. <laughs> I know. Now, like I said, this is our last show for the year, so we're going to look back at the films that have most impressed, entertained, inspired and provoked us. Uh, one of the, the only criteria we are going to be using for our selection is the films had to be released theatrically in Melbourne in 2014. So we're not going to talk about advanced media screenings of films that we've seen ahead of time that nobody listening to this show has had a chance to see. Uh, time permitting, we'll also, we'll also discuss some of the special event screenings and festival screenings that we also enjoyed this year. Now, all four of us have selected our top ten films of the year and over the next uh, hour or 55 minutes, we're going to make sure we mention at least everybody's top five films because whenever we talk about our favourite films, we tend to get carried away and discuss them at length. Uh, but I will post the full top ten lists on the Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website later tonight. Or let's face it, probably sometime tomorrow. Also, if you grab the trip, the latest edition of the trip has our collected top ten, which is always really fascinating to it put is. together. And it's... It's interesting reading, isn't it? Because often there are films on that, that none of us would put in our personal top ten. It's like a democracy. Everybody's represented, but nobody really has what they want in the list. <laughs> well said. It's exactly that, isn't it? But it's sort of, yeah, have a look at the trip for the films that all four of us collectively said, yeah, okay, we'll agree that we all like that one. But, but tonight we are going to all get to mention our, our personal favourites of the year, and we're going to have a snark-free show. This is what about what we love, not what we hated or, or thought was overrated or anything like that. Now, we're going to... I thought we would try to go through the films in a somewhat thematic order, very, very loosely thematic order. A lot of historical films came out this year, good films set in the past that comment on the present. So we're going to look at some of these films set in the past that are, you know... Between us all, we, we, we put a vote in for. And I thought I'd start with one that many of us really, really liked a lot. Um, and that's 12 Years a Slave. This made Josh's top five and Tara's top five, and it's in my top ten as well. So which one of you two would like to just say a few words about 12 Years a Slave, why this is a significant film for us? Yeah, I'll, I'll say a couple of words, and then Josh can say all the other words. Um, I... I thought this film was quite remarkable. Uh, one for its visual style. This uh, Steve McQueen is an incredibly adept a director at bringing art to harrowing subject matter um, in a way that I don't think undermines the subject matter. Um, it just lends it another dimension, which is really what cinema should do. So uh, his visual style, the way in which we see these different hues of gold and yellow in the fields, um, really brings another aspect to the understanding 
understanding of that historical place, um, one that you, you can't create in another way. And I've read Solomon Northup's account um, in full, which is unbelievably faithful, this film, as an adaptation. Uh, there, there's really only two things that um, I would say are kind of different from the, the original text, and there's very good reason why they are different. One is that um, in the text, Solomon Northup uh, writes about the very lengthy process um, of, of legality in which he was set free, which for a film is probably not as emotively um, successful as the sort of quick resolution that we get at the end. So he does speed things up at the end. We don't get the full account of the court proceedings. Um, and the other is that, and in fact, in the writing, there is more favouritism for the Benedict Cumberbatch character, who was the kind of kind slave master, if I can put that in quotes, because it's obviously um, a kind comparative to others. Uh, but there, there was um, a more fondness expressed in the writing. But other than that, I have to say that that the events and the essence of this uh, account really comes beautifully to life and very accurately to life. Um, and it's an incredibly important story. It's also the first story about slavery in the US to be told finally from a black person's perspective and, you know, not to be a sort of white history revisionist version of events. Um, yeah, Josh. Yeah, look, I think that last point's really important, although it's it's worth pointing out that he, he comes from it from a UK perspective, which I think is also yeah. interesting, despite the number of commentators earlier this year when it was doing the award season that kept referring to him as an African-American, which was a little bit strange and still is. But the thing I, that really struck me about this film, and it's, I guess it's really stuck with me, is that of the three recent slavery films, the three major release slavery films, along with Lincoln and Django Unchained, there was just something about the way in which he approached the subject matter without indulging arch-saccharine moments or redemptive moments. This is a film, or hyper-stylising it in the, in the way that, say, Tarantino did. And they're very different films, but there was something about the way he approached this subject matter with quite an earnest sensibility and didn't aim for emotional responses from the audience through music or through performance. And that's what left this, me with such a strong emotional resonance for this film, with, this, with this film when it ended. It didn't feel like I was being manipulated along the way, which is so, so an easy thing to do, I think, with, when you're dealing with something like slavery. And yet at the end, this film left me kind of emotionally shattered because it was so beautifully told. And I think it has such a wonderful ending. And look, I think Steve McQueen is a remarkable director. And after Hunger and Shame and the other two films I absolutely adored, I think this is three for three. I think he's a wonderful talent. Yeah, agreed. Extraordinary film. And so strategic about what it shows us and for how long. It makes sure, this film makes sure we appreciate the severity of uh, many of the scenes without ever becoming voyeuristic spectacle. I think the, the, the control and the skill of this, this film and what it shows when it stops showing you certain things is absolutely profound. The, the shot where the lead actor looks into the camera sort of in the last two minutes of the film still sends a bit of a shiver down my spine as I, I think about it. It's a film I'm, I really want to revisit. It's a tough film to make yourself revisit, mm. but I, I, I do very much want to. I think 12 Years a Slave, which came out at the very start of this year, and we, we're still feeling this film now. Okay, so while we're looking at films set in the past, I'm going to throw in one of Cerise's films, actually. This is sort of loosely set in the past because it is, but it's not quite. One of her top five favourite films was Venus in Fur. Now, this is Roman Polanski's very interesting adaptation of a play, which is an adaptation of a very famous Austrian uh, novella by Leopold von Sacher Masochism. I wanted to say masochist because, of course, that's where we got the word masochism. 
purchased from. But Cerise gave us the thumbs up on uh, Venus in Fur, which I think is very much appropriate. I, I, I enjoyed that film a lot. I think Polanski's approach to very difficult subject matter uh, is really playful and clever. Rather than doing a direct adaptation of this story, it's an adaptation of a, a director and an actor he's wanting to cast, performing this on stage, while breaking character and talking about the issues involved in the story. Because it's a pretty dry historical text now that I think a direct adaptation wouldn't really work. And I think it's really clever to have this commentary. It also allows quite a bit of contemporary gender critique to be in, in play to a text that is very problematic now, you know, in, in, in the contemporary context. Yeah, I love this film too, actually. It's not in my top ten, but it was certainly a film that I enjoyed. Um, it's been a while since I I've seen it, but I agree, um, and I'm pretty sure on many of the same points as Cerise, I think it's very funny. I think that it takes um, a great perspective on the roles and issues of gender and sexuality and power and how those power relations play out, and certainly between the two actors. And really the thing for me that makes this film is the wonderful performance from Matteo Almerich and Emmanuel Senya. They're just both fantastic, and I think um, I think I've said this on a previous show, but I loved them in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and I think that they're they're an expertly paired couple in this film too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, one of mine, one of the films that made my top five, and I think I'm going to be pretty much on my own with this. It betrays some of my very particular tastes, but I really adored The Grandmaster, the Wong Kar Wai period film set in the 1930s and then the 1950s, all about martial art uh, icon and legend Ip Man, played by Tony Leung, who just doesn't seem to ever age. This, What's interesting about this film is people who saw it, say, at a festival, context in a, on a very very big screen it did seem to enjoy it more than people who saw it on release on smaller screens mm. I'll just float that idea out there that doesn't surprise me I think those things do can make a difference and particularly yep. with a film like that where the the scale of the imagery is relatively important in terms of um, how you process the content of the film uh, certainly a bigger screen would have a, a much larger impact I mean the joy of this film is the, 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 the glorious production design and the martial arts sequences which are just so visually moving and compelling yeah I mentioned that when we reviewed it uh, earlier this year show unfortunately that you weren't on uh, that's one of the ones I missed yes um, uh, that, that I wished I'd seen it on a bigger screen. I think it, I, was, I was aware of the effect of the scale of the screen that I was watching it affecting my res- response. But I have to say, it still has one of my favourite scenes of the year, and that is that the train station sequence in, oh. the, in the snow, which is just wonderfully executed. Yeah, I just got the shiver down the spine again. I, I love this. I can talk about films I saw months and months ago, and we talk about key moments, and I actually get a shiver down the spine. It's very exciting. Oh, look, I also, it's very much a revisionist historical film as well, but I also quite like the fact that Wong Kar Wai really placed one of the female characters as quite central and important into the film, even suggesting that she may be the grandmaster of the title after all, since one of her big action sequences is one of the big set pieces of the film. So props to that. Uh, historic, talking about historical... F- a couple I'm going to mention quickly, uh, historical films that... Uh, one for Cerise, one for me. Cerise also gave a mention to Pride. This was in her top ten. Kind of took us all by surprise because we thought this was going to be a very, very <laughs> yes. cheesy, schmaltzy, feel-good film. And and it kind of still is, but it works really well. A uh, film all about when various LGBTI networks 
basically work together with striking miners to fight uh, against police brutality and, and factorism in general. Yeah, it was a feel-good film with some smarts. I think I said that at the time, and I was very much surprised. I did not expect to like this film because it looked like a kind of a, a hackneyed version of Brastoff meets The Full Monty. Neither of those films are entirely bad on their own, right? But, you know, in a contemporary that context. That sounds terrible as a mixture together. I know, that's what I thought. And it was something very different and a, a wonderful cast as well. The, the one downside about that film was it didn't seem to catch on to an audience here. So hopefully it finds an afterlife on um, on digital and, uh, can we say DVDs? Do people still watch DVDs now? I think so. Yeah. And, I still and do. And Blu-ray. Good, yeah, <laughs> me too. But it really was such a big feel-good film, so I'm surprised it didn't, it didn't sort of resonate with broader audiences. Um, okay, another one of mine, which I'm going to tentatively throw into the ring, which made my top ten, is The Wolf of Wall Street, which I don't think we've ever had this out on the show, because I know you weren't a fan. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I, was I not here? For, I think maybe I wasn't around on the show we, where... We, we weren't even here on the show, but yeah. when we first started, we sort of talked about some of the um, uh, fallout on films like 12 Years a Slave and The Wolf of Wall Street. So we sort of commented on some of the controversy with this film. Look, I'm very much of the point of view that this is like a gangster film, that it, it, it's it's like Goodfellas or Casino. It's the third part of Scorsese's uh, revolting men behaving badly that we kind of enjoy the ride with and ultimately we see it's empty sh- shallow and, and horrible but I, I i just think this is you know another triumph for scorsese i enjoyed the wolf of wall street an awful lot yeah um, my top 10 that list has actually changed 17 times in the last 12 minutes so i think it's <laughs> just jumped back into number 10 um there's another one too we might mention which might sneak back in but yeah i really dug this film as well i thought it was a, a well i wouldn't say a return to form because i thought hugo was a great film as well i think scorsese is doing some really interesting stuff but i thought the way in which it had such a moral gray area in terms of that dicaprio character i thought was was uh, really interesting, I'm sure. I, I'm absolutely going to revisit that film too. I didn't like it, so I'm, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we are going to maintain the love here. It's going to happen. There's going to be films we all mention. The others go, right, <sighs> you can have that one. I'll just wait till it's my turn. <laughs> and finally, I again, one I'm going to mention, which I've decided is going to be in my top five. Again, it's loosely historical because it's sort of a fantastic fan, it's a, it's a fantasy, fantasy version of history, and it's the Grand Budapest Hotel, which which is a film I have tr- I've had a lot of trouble shaking. It just really charmed me and mesmerised me. As somebody who isn't necessarily a big fan of Wes Anderson, I love the Royal Tenenbaums, and everything since has left me a bit shoulder shruggy. I really got into this film, and I, I think what really makes this film work is the last five or so minutes when the reality of fascism entering Europe really rams home. There's that section that goes into black and white as the world has its colour drained from it, and, and the violence, which is mainly in the film, is slapstick and, comedi- and comedic. The violence at the end of this film is actually quite confronting, and there's a real sadness and melancholia which I think defines this film. But otherwise, it's just so wonderfully delightful. Yeah, I'd pretty much written Where's Anderson off for the last, his last few films, and this is a massive return to form. I thought probably the most I've enjoyed a film of his since Royal Tenenbaums, and I think the one thing that completely won me over with Grand Budapest Hotel, apart from how fun it is, is there's some smarts behind the style. The way in which he aligns certain stylistic techniques from a visual point of view um, to each of the flashbacks. So the, the more we regress in history, the stranger and more hyper-stylized the, the aesthetic and the mise-en-scene becomes. And I thought, actually, there's some thought and, and methodology behind the, the style and madness here that really, really showed, I guess, his potential as a, as a smart filmmaker as well, not just a, an artistic kind of visual filmmaker. I really enjoyed this when I saw it at the theatre 
theatre. I thought it was um, an awful lot of fun, but uh, I didn't stick. A, it didn't stick with me afterwards. I sort of in, had a lot of fun watching it, and then kind of quite promptly forgot it. Much like I did with Interstellar, which I really enjoyed the viewing experience of, largely because it was an IMAX, um, <laughs> and and then kind of forgot about a day or two later. Actually, I kind of know what you mean with Interstellar. I, I really loved it at the time as well, yeah. but time hasn't been kind to that film so, for me. And, you know, that doesn't mean that they're bad films. Mm. I, th- I think there's, there's some joy to be had in like just going to the cinema and enjoying the film while you're there, but not everything sticks with you when you see 300 plus films in a year and yeah. sometimes they don't stick around. This one did stick with me. I think it's partly because I've developed a major crush in Ray Fiennes and it <laughs> may have had something to do with the fact I had a drink with him earlier this Ding. year. I know, there it is. <laughs> I'll just pick up that name I dropped. It also had a glorious soundtrack. Let's hear a bit of that now and we'll um, resume talking about our favourite films of the year here on Plato's Cave. You're listening to Triple R 102.7. Three triple R. We're here with Josh Tara Thomas and Cerise in absence. We're looking at our favourite films of 2014, sort of our, our, our final salute to the year before we finish up for summer. We're going to look now at a clump of films I very, very loosely called contemporary social commentary films, but I think sort of films that very much comment on uh, issues that are very much relevant right now and have a real immediacy and sense of importance to them, as well as being great works in their own right. So I'm going to start off, I thought, with Two Days at One Night. This has made the top five for myself and for Tara, and it's also in Cerise's top ten. And Josh, I believe you rather like it as well. It's, uh, we gave it a glowing review at the time. Yeah, we've just had another change. It's just slipped back into top ten and Wolf <laughs> Wall Street's down at eleven. In I fact, think... actually, Tara, you take it away, because you weren't here the day we reviewed this film, and, oh, I, knew it it, and I knew it was one of your favourites. Yeah, it was. And I, I'm just going to say for Cerise, I think that she'd probably say this was sort of like a cantaloupe orange sort of hue. Um, I think this is a, a really remarkable film and an incredible performance from Marion Cotillard. I mean, the Dardenne brothers are known for their social realism, um, and and also before they moved into social realism, they used to make documentary films, so they very much know how to bring about uh, a very realistic and naturalistic uh, aesthetic. And the thing that really struck me the most about this film is the physical embodiment of the role that Marion Cotillard takes on. And she's playing Sandra, who is suffering depression, and physically manifests her depression, I think, in a really uh, in- incredibly real way in this film, one that is very believable, very plausible, and very moving. And the difficulty of such a simple action... I mean, this re- this really this film reminds me of things like uh, early Iranian cinema, the um, Where is the Friend's House? You know, it's it's got a very simple premise where someone has one thing that they set out to achieve um, and it's an, and obstacles are in their way. It's, you know, if you were to sort of look at how this plays out in terms of its plot, is it's it's very simplistic um, goal but a very difficult and hard one to achieve because of the problems of society and the way in which those structures constantly work against you. And it also really questions, um, you know, the place of of humanity in capitalism and I think that this film does that so beautifully because even though we understand that the system is unfair we also know that every individual makes decisions within that system that have to affect um, adversely um, other people and they have to weigh that up against their own needs and then the needs of self and the needs of other and it's really a beautiful film that makes you think long and hard for I think days months a very long time after seeing it on the way in which we behave to other people 
people and, and what, what is ethical and what is right about basically being a human and living in what we would call a society. I also love how it's pretty much structured like High Noon or 12 Angry Men. Like it's actually got quite a formal structure that remind me of a lot of classic Hollywood sort of, uh, not social realists because Hollywood never did that, but kind of social responsibility or, or social aware films that Hollywood used to do before it became... I don't know, sort of a, a, something that they were terrified of doing for box off, office reasons. But, and that's a real skill of the Dardine brothers. There is so much control and pre- precision in their films, but they make it look like everything's happening on the fly. They give it this cinema verite look. And, yeah, just, just amazing. Uh, for all the reasons you, you, you said, I think it really shows us the way capitalism pits people together in a really unfair way. Just the way that company in that film basically get rid of all their responsibility and make their employees effectively fight amongst themselves. It's such a cruel thing they do to these people. And Marianne Cotillard, I don't think I've seen her give a better performance in this. Uh, uh, I also think the way she portrays somebody who is recovering from quite a s- severe setback due to depression is is really well performed. With um, There's just so much integrity to that performance. And I think I said this at the time, this is also a film with a perfect ending. I can't remember the last time a film ended and I thought they nailed that. I wouldn't have changed a thing about the way they ended that film. This this was a real surprise for me. I mean, I've always liked the Dardine brothers, but I was absolutely blown away by the power of this film. Yeah, wonderful film. And you're right, Tara, this is such a simple premise executed with, with such panache and nuance. I mean, the way in which, you know, those those scenes play out on variation and, and twist your, your sympathies, because it's not as simple as she's going to be our point of identification, she's the one who's in the moral right, and everyone else is in the moral wrong. I mean, I think the way in which it plays, again, with that kind of grey area, makes this such a beautiful film. And that, you're talking about scenes that have stuck with me. The scene where she confronts the dad in the soccer pitch. Oi, that mm. is <laughs> just one of the best acted, performed scenes of any film this year. Like, that is just, you know, remarkable filmmaking that cuts so deep with such sort of social conscience as well. Yeah, wonderful film. So that's Two Days, One Night. Now, another film that featured highly for uh, many of us is A Touch of Sin. This was a top five film for you, Tara. It's in my top ten. And again, I'm pretty sure all of us in the cave felt very highly about A Touch of Sin. Yeah, this film I actually saw in the middle of 2013 and I'm still thinking about it. So that that's how um, resonant I found it. I haven't actually rewatched it since, but I, I still find that it, it pops up on my mind. Uh, it's based on a couple of real events that took place across China. So these were um, real killings or, or, you know, difficult events that took place. And then they're fleshed out and imagined by Zha Zhangke. Now, he's had an incredibly prolific and, and also difficult career um, making films that have to uh, get passed within a system that, you know, he's often criticising, and that's essentially what this film does too. Um, he, he makes very slow cinema that really contemplates the landscape as much as it does its characters and their actions. So these are actions that, you know, again, of humans affecting other humans, but very much the landscape and China, like what that is and how it maybe condemns or or allows its characters to move or not to move, to mobilise, not to mobilise or to achieve their aims um, is is really important. And that that's something that always kind of come back to is not so much, I mean, there is violence in these films. It's not those things that stick with me not the violent scenes, but these images of um, such an abundant landscape sometimes in many ways, particularly the opening of this film, but but that one that isn't able to really provide adequately for the people um, and that, that creates such intense poverty and unrest. 
Yeah, it's it's a very sobering film, but it's also um, I mean it's it's beautiful to look at. But another film that's so beautifully controlled and sort of I don't know it's it's just like so wound tight and it slowly releases. I remember I went to see this twice because the first time I was quite tired and I had a sense of I didn't appreciate this film properly. And I'm so glad I did see it a second time. Just things like the, the, the methods of the weapons that, that get used and the methods of violence become more and more intimate as the film progresses to the point where it becomes very direct violence against the self. And, um, I, look, yeah, it, it, quite a profound film. Even with my limited understanding of some of the, the socio-political issues in China, I still really felt the power of a touch of sin. And the use of animal symbolism as well, that's yeah. sort of stuck mm. with me. And, you know, those, those um, what seem initially to be uh, loosely connected or, or barely connected sequences have such a strong symbolic connection from sequence to sequence. Yeah, really, like, like you, Tara, this is, film has uh, stuck with me as well. Now, somebody actually asked me today, what is the film that you saw this year that you weren't expecting to like as much as you did that, that really blew you away? And I had to have a think about it. Then I realised it's one of the films, Josh, that you've picked as your top five, in your top five, which is the Irish film Calvary, which really did sneak up on me and move me to a profound degree, but I think it moved you into an even profounder uh, degree. Well, given that, um, <laughs> apart from my partner who saw it with me, you were the first person I met outside the cinema, and I was uh, I think I was a little bit... Um, I'd uh, forgotten about that, Stuck yeah. for words, yeah. left, left sort of speechless. Yeah, look, if you had to put the metaphoric gun to my head and force me to make the cinematic Sophie's Choice, this would be my number one film of the year. This worked for me on every level. I thought it was a, a remarkable film in terms of the ideas it explored, the idea of having uh, um, uh, the central character of a film a catholic priest in a contemporary era a sympathetic one and the whole conflict of the film you know um a priest who's th- who has his life threatened he's got seven days to live and he's going to be assassinated potentially because he's good not because he's corrupt and that's what sends a statement i thought the way in which it wove in issues that are very specific to ireland in a post gfc context in terms of um capitalism and and the loss of money and, and class issues with the kind of broader issue about sin redemption um and what is the kind of value of faith in a fallen world. I thought, you know, John Michael McDonough, the writer-director of this film, is, is such a talent. And even as much as I love The Guard, I thought we saw something something well in excess of that in terms of the, the maturity of the way in which he um, he directed this film, but also the way in which he got remarkably r- remarkable dramatic performances from comedic actors such as Dylan Moore and, and Chris O'Dowd. They showed something else in that film. And look, Brendan Gleeson, hands down, you're an extraordinary actor, but here again, like Marion Cotillard, you've just stepped up your game. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said. I don't have anything else really to add to that. But it's not quite in my top ten, but it's certainly one of the ones pushing the boundaries just outside. Yeah, look, it's like that with me as well. I just, just so blown away by how good it was on every level. I was not expecting it to be that deep. I knew it was a black comedy, but I wasn't expecting to be welling up and just really, really quite moved by what, what unfolded on screen with Calvary. All right, we're just going to fly through a few other films now that kind of loosely fall under this idea of contemporary social commentary that these are all films that have appeared in top tens, not necessarily the top five. But one of the ones that's popped up is from your list, Tara, Charlie's Country, which I think we can all comfortably say was our favourite Australian film of the year collectively. Yeah, I think collectively that's probably collectively. true. Collectively. Yeah, well, I, I thought this was democracy. a good year for Australian cinema, actually. And there's one more film we, we, we are going to mention later on. But but Charlie's Country was right up there with the best. But it was in our collective, The Trip, Top Ten. It was yes. in The Trip, wasn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, there's, there's many reasons for that. One is that... Um, I, 
David Goldpilil's performance is incredible, but also that he was responsible for much of the the writing of the story for this film. And so this is, I mean, above and beyond how incredible um, the film is itself, this is really one of the first films that to have such a success, especially internationally, as it played at the Cannes Film Festival earlier in the year, that's from the perspective or has joint perspective from not just a white filmmaker this is you know got david Golpalil, an indigenous australian who is actually involved in the making of this film and the story and it i mean it's not just his story it's charlie's fictional story but it very much has a lot to do with david Golpalil's. it's informed by his own experiences in his life um and seeing him perform on screen in this way especially when he's an actor that you've grown up watching all your life in this country um and who has had such such pigeonholed roles not that they were bad or that he wasn't good in them he's an incredible actor in all of those roles but that he's played a specific type of role for so long to have him be the story of this film um really is a significant thing and something that uh, i i just am i think it's unbelievable we've had to wait so long for it but it's a real joy that it's finally come about this film's also as funny as it is poignant yeah, that was my response. Actually, I felt like I feel like this film has been long overdue, and it's the film that Rolf Dehir I feel like has been building up to for a long time. And I'm glad you mentioned the comedy because it is actually a very funny film for, for, for a lot of it. Uh, very quickly, in brief, so we can keep moving. Um, Josh, you also had Maps to the Stars. I did. Does that count as a social commentary film? I think it kind of does. I think it's fairly vicious satire about Hollywood celebrity culture and, and consumer culture. And I thought, you know, well, is it any is it any surprise to long term listeners of Plato's Cave that I was in love with a Cronenberg film, but a new Cronenberg film or a more recent one, that should come as a little bit more of a surprise. I think apart from the extraordinary performance of, of Julianne Moore in the lead role, or one of the lead roles, yes. um, you know, it, it's just a, a very clever satire. I know you weren't to- totally sold on it, but I, I just thought it really worked. It was, it was biting. It was a really laugh-out-loud funny and had a, a very nasty sting in the tail, which is the, the kind of great irony given it's the first time he's shot in LA in his entire career. And I thought, if you're going to bring him out, you bring him out, and then he, he trashes you to pieces. <laughs> now Tara, you also listed the past? Yeah and again I haven't seen that for about a year or so but I really loved that film. I've, I've been a big fan um, of Asghar Fahadi's films um and the past was really no different i mean this this really the minimalism in terms of lack of lots of heavy music no emphasis on you know overwrought emotional cues this is a a really paired back drama that is basically about um performance and i think that those lead performances are really really great um very emotional and really engaging i I mean you know it's just one that i really loved I threw Nymphomaniac in the mix because I had a ball with this film and I, I'm not too sure what really if it deserves to be regarded as a social commentary film but I've loosely put it in there. Look, I, th- I think these messes with all sorts of ideas of sexuality in sex uh, in a way, and gender as well for that matter, <laughs> of course, in a way that I, I, found, I found very playful at times um, and at other times quite disturbing and confronting as you'd expect from Von Trier. This was another surprise, this film actually. I wasn't expecting it to be as kind of funny and, and self-aware as it was. I, I thought this was evidence of a very skilled filmmaker who's also thumbing his nose at the audience. Uh, especially the first part, I think, of this is really strong filmmaking. Has there been any word of the extended cut ever getting a release, the five or six hours? Is it not on the DVD? I think you can maybe watch it home entertainment-wise. I don't know if in Australia if you can. Oh, can you not? Because it's pretty X-rated, apparently, the full cut. Yeah, I've seen the full cut of, the f- of Volume 1. Yeah. Um, I haven't 
I think I saw volume two uh, at a regular cinema in London, so I'm not sure what I can't remember now. But the vol- volume one um, extended cut, to be honest, you don't miss a lot, and a lot of what is cut Just out. Just more is... Shia LaBeouf penis. No, <laughs> it's well, it's not. It's not really the sex that's cut out of um, volume yep. one. In fact, what's cut out is just a, a lot of that fly fishing explanation that goes on a lot longer in um, the extended cut than you get in. Oh, in, in yeah. um, there's, oh there's, There really is a lot more of that, um, and, and just mainly dialogue. It really was quite a lot of dialogue that was cut out of the film. Uh, speaking of lots of dialogue that didn't get cut out of the film, Tara, I had to take that segue. Tara, wow. you also mentioned Winter's Sleep. Yes, I did, and I know that you weren't entirely convinced on this one, Thomas. But um, I, I really think that uh, Nuri Bilgit. Jaylan is an incredible filmmaker. I've enjoyed all of his films. Winter Sleep was no different for me. Um, I know that perhaps Anatolia, maybe Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, maybe sits like a margin above. But I really did also. I did find the again the use of the landscape and um, and really just using cinema as a way to tease out slow philosophical contemplation uh, I think is really appropriate particularly um, set in that that particular place and I found the characters in terms of how they slowly revealed themselves very compelling and before we go to some music I'm going to mention one of Cerise's top five films for this year which is The Broken Circle Breakdown. Which I still haven't seen. Oh well Cerise and I in particular we were both really taken by it. It's a, a Belgian film about a, a couple who have a child who is very, very sick it's, it's cancer I think from memory it's, but it, it's a really intelligent relationship drama. It's hard to express without seeing the film actually because it sounds like real movie of the week tear jerky stuff and it, look it is a tear jerker but um, uh, it's also, as well as being a really good film, looking at the, the, the role of, of family and tensions within a relationship, it's also quite a beautiful tribute to being in a family of musicians and the bluegrass music that the, the, the family and their extended circle of friends who are in the band with them is really quite glorious. Three. Triple. You're listening to Plato's Cave. We're looking at our favourite films from the year. And, oh, look at the time. It's almost quarter to eight. This always happens. We, always. We, we've got so many films we want to talk about. So we're going to start picking up the pace a bit. Let's talk about what Josh has referred to as the trilogy of vampire films that came out this year. I mentioned this on The Breakfasters, actually. Who, 12 months ago, would have thought that three great vampire films would come out in one year? Uh, but there have been three great ones. Starting off, let's start off with, let's go in order. Only Love was left alive was earlier in the year yeah one of my favorite films jim jarmusch tom hiddleston tilda swinton it's the year of tilda i think partly anyway i think you said that last year it's every year is the year of tilda um and Gillian anderson uh look I, I thought this was a wonderful film i described it as a warm blanket film a film for gen x's vampires dark kind of dirty detroit city love i there was something about this film that really connected to me and i, I yeah i just think it was one of the the warmest cinema experience I've had this year. I adored it too. As a long-term Jamoosh fan, just loved it. Uh, but then very different change of pace is a film that Cerise, who's uh, not with us tonight, sadly, uh, she's sick, she's still around. <laughs> to say, she's not dead. Wow, that, that sounded like dramatic. Speaking of vampires. <laughs> uh, this was in her top ten. It's another one in your top five, Josh, was the New Zealand mockumentary What We Do in the Shadows. And I've got to say, this is one of the funniest films I've seen in an awfully long time. I did laugh 
consistently throughout this film. Yeah, funniest film of the year for me, hands down. Uh, Taika Waititi, who I love from uh, directing Boy and Jermaine Clement from the Flight of the Concords days. Sharehouse vamp- Vampires and, and Wellington. I think what's not to love, and, and this film was just so so lovable in every single way. Wonderful film. Uh, part of what makes what we do in The Shadows work so much is they maintained the premise so perfectly. Like, it was a proper mockumentary. Like they, co- they kept on referring back to the idea that there was a camera crew there. It wasn't just forgotten, which is often what you get in mockumentaries. And they use that to great comedic potential. And I've just, you know, the, got to give a call out to the werewolves who aren't werewolves. They're Reece, werewolves. Reece Darby, wonderful. Yeah, I, I was in tears at that scene. And the final film, which is one we talked about at length last week, which is it made your top five as well, Josh. And Tara, it's also made your top five, and you haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. It comes out on the 27th of December. A girl walks home alone at night. I am in love with this film. Well, we, it's such, it's that kind of film, isn't it? Wow. What an amazingly rich film this is. I think I read about 13 pages of notes, which, you know, are kind of just sitting in my notebook. But I just, I just could not stop staring at the screen and writing things down almost like a stream of consciousness the entire way through this film. It's unbelievably beautiful the use of light and shadow is the best that i have seen this year in any film this is um in terms of what was theatrically or will be theatrically released in uh, melbourne this year this is my number one um it's not my number one film that i saw all year but that's because i have a festival film that takes that place but this is uh, outside of that the best film that i have seen theatrically all year i cannot encourage people to go and see this enough i think i'm going to go see it again just see it as many times as you can. I'm going to see it again. And one of the films I saw more than uh, once this year, since we're doing vampires, let's now move on to science fiction. We sort of have that kind of genre thing happening now for this little segment. I'm going to mention Snowpiercer, which is uh, a film I have seen twice. This is um, the remarkable South Korean political allegory action film. I think at the time I said, you know, if you felt that Brazil needed to be set on a train and be ultra-violent, then Snowpiercer is the film for you. Uh, Just love the connection action of this film i love the way the allegory worked you know it seems so simple people fighting from the back of the train up to the to the front but the whole production design of this film works beautifully uh just one of the most exciting and thought-provoking blockbusters i've seen in a long time i'm using that expression way too much but it is i mean this is what this is what blockbusters can be they don't have to be dumb they can be really really smart and exciting i mean i think you rated this highly as well didn't absolutely you, and for the reasons you've just just stated and you know the film isn't even shy about its references to terry gilliam i think the john hurt character from memory is called Gilliam, yes, he is, which is yes. a wonderful ode as well. But yeah, such an exciting film, which again, um, I think in many ways toys with a lot of the tropes of the blockbuster, particularly the Hollywood blockbuster in terms of how the character arcs pan out at the end, and that's all I'll say, but go and see it if you haven't. Another science fiction film that rated highly uh, between us, this is one Cerise had in her top five, and you also really enjoyed Josh, although calling it a science fiction, it's a loose definition of what science fiction is, and that's Under the Skin, Scarlett Johansson as a predator alien in Scotland draining men of their life force. Uh, I mean, this was remarkable, wasn't it? From a visual, from a stylistic perspective, from a structural perspective, you know, this has kind of got moments of cinema verite with some very abstract bordering on experimental filmmaking in it as well. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I called it, I think, an experimental existential sci-fi film, but, you know, I, and I adored this film. I think it was wonderful, and you know, as much as this is the year of Tilda Swinton, I think you could say that this has been the year of Scarlett Johansson as well. She's done some really good stuff this year. Actually, I think it's generally been quite a good year for for science fiction blockbustery films. I think the caliber 
but has been a bit higher this year. So I'm going to quickly mention some other ones that we have collectively mentioned. Josh, you had Guardians of the Galaxy right up there. And, I mean, you and I just had a big love fest when we talked about that that night. We were just doing the show by ourselves. Yeah, favourite tentpole blockbuster of the year, easily. I think it's the best thing Marvel Studios have done. Uh, Tara, you rated John Wick, the, the hitman. John Wick, John Which Wick. you really enjoyed. And I've got to say, I had a great time with this film as well. I don't think I have smiled so much in a cinema in such a long time that this film was just like riotous good fun Keanu Reeves is awesome and 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 you know great premise yeah I, I enjoyed it as well and the other kind of film of this ilk that both Tara you and Cerise gave nods to was the Australian film The Babadook which kind of went unnoticed here and now that it's getting recognition overseas people are talking about it again well the funny thing about this is that I completely missed it because I was away traveling when it came out here and then um, my only other opportunity was set on a plane and I didn't really want to so I only actually caught up with this really recently um, and I thought it was fantastic I, I, I think I still my only strange criticism or thing I would love to unpick is why it's so overlit inside the house. I think it's deliberate, but I'm not sure entirely why. But that point aside, I found this film is just a beautiful incarnation of Freudian me- mourning and melancholia. <laughs> well said. Let's move on now to a couple of very strong coming-of-age films that came out this year. One, Tara, that you rated extraordinarily highly, as did Cerise. Is boyhood. Yeah, I, I, I keep coming back to this because um, one of the things that people always say is, you know, that, that the only thing that's impressive about this film is that it was filmed over 12 years, and I think that that's bollocks. Um, I think this film is impressive for other reasons, one of which for me is Patricia Arquette's performance, which still is, aside from Marion Cotillard's performance, maybe like, and, oh, okay, Julianne Davis Moore. and Julianne Moore, <laughs> but such a standout for me this year. Patricia Arquette in this film, I think, is um, just one of the most huge human and moving performances that I've seen and I think the development of that throughout this film is um, significant. I know that it's a boyhood it's supposed to be about a young boy but I just took Patricia Arquette's performance away from this. I would totally agree with that. That is what stayed with me from this film as well. How And her character development as well. Just the incredible strength that character builds over the hardship of that film. Yeah, look, my one one major criticism of this film is it doesn't end when it should and that's that end scene with Patricia Arquette and the son as he moves on to the next phase in his life that's the scene that's the money roll credits amazing the other coming of age film that i rated highly and cerise rated extremely highly is blue is the warmest color so we've got both palm door winners actually you know in our collective top tens on this show winter sleep being this year's blue is the warmest color being last year's but the the, the very remarkable very very long uh film about a, a teenage uh, French girl who falls in love with a slightly older woman and the whole film is just shot in this extremely tight series of close-ups and some sort of medium close-ups and it just gives you this sense of intensity how their whole worlds become each other and it just conveys the, 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 the passion, uh, the, the, the madness and the ultimately the sort of the, the despair of, of of an intense relationship when it breaks apart. It's just really mesmerising cinema. I love being in their world. And the few moments where you do get sort of long shots where the camera moves back a bit are used very strategically just to give you a bit of a breather and to comment on maybe there is something that's been lost or there or, or a sense of moving on, perhaps. Uh, yeah, really, the cinematography in that film is stunning, so that's one that I really liked, as did Cerise. Very quickly, this is these are films we can loosely describe as coming-of-age, maybe coming-of-age films for adults who behave like children. We've got The Skeleton Twins. Yeah, one of my favourite films. And again, a bit like uh, Calvary 2 
extraordinary, dramatic performances from two well-known comic actors, Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader. There's just an incredible chemistry between two actors that I didn't see that often on screen this year. And Cerise, or, sorry, Tara, go I was ahead. just going to say, that one's not in my top ten, but I might call that the one I was most surprised by. I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. It's a good call, actually. Yeah, mm. it snuck up on me as well. I really, for, for the kind of film it is, it's, yeah. it's really smart and entertaining, and I came up feeling good without feeling compromised. Yeah. <laughs> and another one Cerise wanted to mention that we all enjoyed, and I think in the trip, is Tom at the Farm, the, the French-Canadian film by Xavier Dolan, who just is way too talented for someone that young goddamn him. <laughs> Unbelievable how talented that young man is. But um, And we've all got different feelings about his other films, I think, but this is the one we, we, we did all agree on and say this is a great film. So Tom at the Farm is definitely worth tracking it down. We're coming close to the end. We'll try to squeeze in just some, just some thoughts and other highlights throughout the year. But just quickly, I think Josh has said if a gun was pointed at his head, he would say Calvary was his favourite theatrical yeah, release. Like I think so. What was yours, Tara? Theatrically, it's a girl walks home alone at night, yep. which is going to, coming up at Acme. And my one, which I classify as misery and music section with the broken circle breakdown, <laughs> uh, my one is Inside Lewin Davis. This is going back to the very, very start of the year, the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis, which just, again, a film that I thought was beautiful. I love the cinematography. I love the editing. I love the performances. And what I lo- I went to see it twice. And you love the cat. I love the cat. It's such a good year for cinematic cats. Again, yeah. again a girl walks home. Great, Great cat. cat. Massacre. Um, and, and the cat and inside Lewin Davis. It's so metaphorical. I love a metaphorical cat. <laughs> but uh, the one thing, yeah, as well as the great music, and we're going to play a track from the soundtrack in a second, uh, is you know it's a film that there were moments in this film where I was laughing and also my heart was breaking. And I think that's a remarkable achievement. Achievement. I think this is the Coen Brothers at their absolute best. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're coming up to the very end of Plato's Cave for this year. So just very quickly, we're going to go over some of our other cinematic highlights. Uh, uh, Cerise Howard mentioned Fish and Cat and Goodbye to Language and Ukraine is Not a Brothel with some highlights. You saw it. Myth, also the young Schrunkmeyer season at Melbourne Cinematheque, which she was very much part of. Uh, she, was also, she also loved the whole, the Jacques Becker film at Cinematheque. Speaking at Cinematheque, I'm just going to say thank you so much to the people at Cinematheque for allowing me to see Igmar Bergman's persona for the first time ever. Also, the wonderful program at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. The Agnes Varda season was glorious. Yes. I got to see Cleo from five to seven for the first time. We also love the masterpieces of Polish cinema season they did. We dedicated the whole show to that. And personally, Ashes and Diamonds, finally seeing that was quite a revelation for me. While on Acme, Stop Making Scenes, The Talking Heads doco blew pretty much all of us away. And also those glorious prints of the Godfather films, which we dedicated an entire show to. A little bit of gushing on the Godfather prints. I just want to say that... Richard Sawada and Kirsty Matheson are amazing people. Thank you for programming such wonderful things this year. Yeah, pretty much, I'm just going to echo exactly what you've said. They were so extraordinary. Acme was my home away from home this year. All of those ones you mentioned were just wonderful, wonderful cinema experiences that gave us that kind of buzz. Yeah. That is it for us. Uh, we'll be back in some form next year. We're going to return yeah, sometime in mid-February, but you can keep listening to Mother of Invention while we are gone. So thank you to everybody who's listened to us and has supported us throughout the year. This is our first year as a permanent show on the grid and thank you to everybody who's been with us since the very early days when we began as a podcast enjoy the festive season and i hope you all see lots of great films and just remember that while cinema is a glorious illusion it is still an illusion that is little more than shadows flickering on a cave wall so don't forget to question the nature of those shadows and why they're being shown to you in the way that they are good night 
You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.